you never know when you're going to say something really cool and we think, oh, I didn't hit record yet. <laughs> I know that has happened to me before. Um, so, I have to tell you, I, I don't think I've ever been interviewed before. All right. I have done lots of interviews. Like I have interviewed lots of people, <laughs> but I don't think I've actually been interviewed. Well, this is a first for me too, Phoebe. You're my first former cult member. G'day and welcome to the Eloquent in the Room podcast. I'm Rose Cooper. How are we all going? Well, I've had a very eventful couple of weeks since I spoke to you last. Um, Literally two days after I posted the second part of the interview with Ginny from My Disabled Sex Life, my Instagram went off. I'll try and keep the story brief because, you know, if you're not into Instagram, you're going to find it boring as hell. In fact, if you're not into Instagram at all, maybe skip along to the interview. Um, But basically, Evelyn Nam, who is also known as Perspective Feminism on Instagram, posted a reel, as she has wont to do. She posts really cool reels uh, that speak to intersectional feminism, anti-racism, and particularly the language of oppression and patriarchy and how best for us to navigate that, particularly people who need to hear the things that she has to say about anti-racism, toxic masculinity, feminism, and how patriarchy has us all in its spell. She's very even-handed, but very concise and at times very blunt. And to some people, they find it a bit abrasive, but her fan base is growing by 10K a week at the moment. And she makes really creative videos using her beautiful, stunning visage as the punchline a lot of the time. She'll be a bit demure to begin with, and then she'll change the mood, change the lighting, put on a bit of makeup and fix her hair and next thing you know you're quite mesmerised by this powerful woman. Um, We are many things, we are vulnerability and we are our powerfulness and sometimes you have to dress that up to um, get it across in visual mediums like Instagram. I guess these are tropes that we're used to, these are ones that have impact But at the end of the day, they're all kind of meaningless, really. Why would makeup and fashion make us seem more fierce and powerful? Why can't we just be fierce and powerful and unadorned? And these are the things that went through my head when I contemplated um, doing a remix of Evelyn's Reel because it immediately struck me as something that I should respond to. Um, She captioned it you know, I'm a woman, you expect me to be this, this, and this, and this, and then the reveal is, but I'm always going to surprise you. And I thought, well, as an older woman, (laughs) you also have judgments and prescribed ideas of how I should behave as well. So I signed up for that. That's what I decided to perform it around. And I almost didn't put any makeup on at all. I'm sitting there quite plain and dejected as she is at the beginning of hers. Um, I was nearly just going to have my transformation be nothing except a change in attitude. I wasn't going to put any makeup on or change my clothes or anything like that. But then I realised that's the nature of the, <laughs> that's the nature of the way things work. People like to see these impactful transformations. If you're on Instagram, you'd be well familiar with the whole putting your hand over the lens thing between looking one way and then looking a completely different way. So having said, I'm not going to over explain it. I just explained the absolute shit out of it. (laughs) Anyway, so I got out my little black dress that I have had since 1989, put on makeup. I'm not really great at it and um, had my little transformation and included a little bit of a writhing, self-appreciative dance move just for good measure. And um, I was hoping it would get a good reaction. I was hoping that Evelyn herself would see it. And after a few days, yes, I did get 
quite a nice reaction. A lot, a lot of people watched it and liked it and commented on it. Um, I think it was like the Wednesday or Thursday that I actually uploaded it. And then two weeks ago on Sunday afternoon, I was just, I didn't have my phone in my hand for a couple of hours, which is kind of unusual these days, seeing as I've become so focused on being that performative um, content creator on Insta, particularly. And I go to check my page and I noticed that there was a notification and on that notification it said, you know, 60-odd people had added to me. And I was thinking, hang on, what? And I refreshed the page and it was suddenly 75 people and I kept refreshing the page and it was more and more and more. Woohoo! Woohoo! And then hundreds. And within a couple of hours, <laughs> no joke, over a thousand people had added me and over the next few days, a few hundred more as it stands now. Since then, two weeks ago, I have almost 2,000 more followers than I had before. Put that in perspective, it had taken me 18 months prior to this to accumulate 850 followers. How did this happen, you may ask? Well, Evelyn had seen my remix and didn't just post it in her story, she actually put it on her main wall. And when I realised this and saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comments of people just loving the shit out of it, feeling empowered by it, feeling so much love for both Evelyn and myself, for being, as so many people kept saying, badass bitches. And I thought, I I never thought I'd really see the day that um, anything I did would ever get that kind of reaction. But it was a perfect alchemy of events and statements. And it's what I was secretly hoping for, but it did exceed my expectations. And it has made me kick things up a notch. So I am producing more visual content And I am getting people liking things a lot and leaving lots of comments and dropping into my DMs. I'm getting engagement, people. I'm getting engagement and I can't adequately explain how that feels when I've been at it for as long as I have been and feeling like a lot of the stuff that I was saying was just going out into the ether and it was kind of like whistling in the wind and um, I would get the occasional message from y'all. The level of engagement that I was receiving wasn't anywhere near reflecting the amount of effort that I have been putting in. So I was beginning to lose heart and it was getting to a bit of a flatlining situation in regards to engagement, hence me being a little bit more um, pleading (laughs) with you, my podcast listeners, my first audience, to do a little bit of liking, sharing, jumping on to Apple Podcasts, give me ratings. This is stuff that I thought would uh, boost the um, algorithm. And to be honest, not a lot of people have actually done that. A handful of people have, and then that stopped happening ages ago. But this whole thing with Evelyn Nam reposting something I did with her captive audience of people who want feminist content actually choosing to follow me, the exact kind of people that I want to follow me, it was like I don't get a break like this very often. Um, So, yeah, I was just... Over the moon. So happy. I even shouted the family pizza. That's how special it was. Anyway, I guess, you know, you just got to be patient. I'm an ox in Chinese astrology. And the ox is slow, but the ground is patient. But then I'm a Scorpio and they're not very patient. I think it's my Sagittarius, Mars. Anywho... So my interview today, oh my gosh, um, how cool. Phoebe Doran got in touch with me out of the blue. 
having listened to the podcast episode that I did with Y.O. Lee. Uh, She interviewed me for her podcast, Sex Stories, and I literally spilled my guts for over two hours talking to her about the ins and outs (laughs) of my sex life. And um, that was so lovely, and she was so lovely that I then um, interviewed her a couple of months later, and we talked about consent in the context of BDSM, because she's a sub, and that was awesome. We also talked for a couple of hours, and I divided it into a few episodes. Anyway, lo and behold, Phoebe gets in touch with me and said that she has her own podcast called Sexuality After, and it's particularly about uh, talking about coming into your own sexuality after certain events in your life, like coming out of a religious background, um, after experiencing trauma or grief, and after childbirth and all sorts of stuff. So it's actually a great idea for a podcast. She didn't start it that long ago, only a few months ago. And um, so she interviewed me a few weeks ago. That episode apparently is slated to appear in October. She's doing these things well ahead of time because she's expecting her second child in a couple of months. She's so organized. I'm really, I'm really jealous because <laughs> um, I'm not very organized. I'm all over the place. Anyway, um, as we were winding up our conversation, we started just chatting amongst ourselves off the record. And I asked her how she got involved in um, doing what she's doing. She has a, uh, a business where she also does emotional and sexuality coaching. And she said, well, she used to belong to a cult and that's how she grew up. And and I'm like, hold the phone. (laughs) You watching the what now? Can I interview you about being in a cult? Please don't tell me anything more now. Let's make an appointment. And we did. We had a chat last Thursday. I spent Friday and Saturday editing it because the lag was like really, really strong. She's in Canada and um, I don't know if it was the time of day or, or because we're in lockdown at the moment in Sydney and everybody's using their fucking internet right now, but there was a lag. So the editing was um, correcting a lot of the yawning spaces and the odd electronic spin that the voice can take on when it's catching up from a lag. So... It was painstaking, but so worth it. Um, We talked about the cult, absolutely. Talked about sexuality, absolutely. And that brought us into discovering things about ourselves as women under patriarchy, both experiencing the same kind of repression around our sexuality. And because I didn't experience it as a direct result of having a religion in my life, I was really fascinated by the fact that, you know what? The things we go through are largely the same in some ways. But then, as you'll hear, she tells me some real doozies about the things that she was told um, growing up in the very, very strict and bizarre Christian cult that she grew up in. So let's resume the conversation where we started at the very top of this episode. She was just telling me that I was her first. That was the deal with Wyo as well. She was the first and only person to interview me. I know that when I interview people... Like she was your first interview? She was the first person to interview me. Actually, the first person I interviewed was my son because I wanted the practice (laughs) interviewing someone I knew and knowing we'd already have banter and stuff and also the opportunity to talk about I'm bi, he's bi. I don't think many people have been a fly on the wall of that conversation before, so it felt like an important conversation to have as well as me graduating from Training Wheels podcaster to I think I really dig this, I want to really do this. But when I was talking to Wyo, I find it so much easier to just tell people what they want to know when they're sitting in front of me asking me. But when I'm producing my own podcast, I think, how is this being delivered? Is this being well understood? Should I put a joke in here? Should I add a sound effect here just to keep people's attention? 
And when you're being interviewed, you know that you have. The person in front of you is giving you their 100% attention and they want all the details and they'll tell you when they want you to expand. It's a nice thing because I feel safe in that environment because it's not my podcast. And if it was my podcast, I might be the target of God knows what if I was to rave on in the same way I do when I'm being interviewed, which is like tell everybody everything. (laughs) Unfiltered, full of detail, you know. Yeah. So Phoebe, do you like Phoebes? Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Phoebe Doran, give us a little bit of background as to who you are and how you became a podcaster. I grew up in a Christian or non-Christian cult and I stayed in it until I was around 28. I left six years ago now-ish. And before I did, I went on a huge journey through my spirituality. I read so many, any books I could get my hands on around spirituality, life after death, anything like that. Um, And then when I left the cult, I kind of started my journey into sexuality because I realized that I had been really repressed and I didn't really know myself and I was divided against myself, sort of. I wasn't very connected to my body because I was taught not to be. And so I really jumped into a more of a sexual journey and it led me to wanting to help other people do the same. So I became a women's sex and emotion coach. And through that journey, I started a podcast called My Messy Lessons because I just wanted to share the things that I was learning in life. And I knew that life was messy and that was something that I was learning. And so... Mm -hmm. It gets less chaotic, stays yeah. messy, but it's it's less chaotic. You learn how to decipher things that are bad lessons and things that are good lessons. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Yeah. And I wanted to just normalize that life was messy. When I became a coach, I decided to start a podcast called Sexuality After, which is what I interviewed you on. I'm really excited for your interview to come out. Yeah. And again, it's just on how our sexuality can be messy too and how we go through ebbs and flows and how it changes and shifts throughout our life. And again, I just want to normalize that and help people feel less shame and hiding around their own sexuality and sex lives and everything like that. So that's how I started that podcast. Mm. That might be a really shortened version of my story. (laughs) So you're 34 now, does that mean? Yeah. Now, among your peers, like, did you have these sort of conversations growing up or were you completely um, in the dark, totally like innocently in the dark while you were still under the influence of the cult? I didn't really question things too much. I had some little things that I noticed that didn't make a lot of sense. Mm. Growing up and I rebelled in some ways, but I didn't have peers that I talked to about any questions or anything really Mm. until I left home and found different friends and a different group of people. And then I could start questioning things. But even then it wasn't for a while after. Mm. There's so many stories of people that (laughs) grew up in the same cult and they were like, oh yeah, I just... I never really bought into it and it was so obvious to me and I was like, oh, why did that happen so long? I know next to nothing about obscure isn't the word I'm looking for, but fringe, fundamental Christian offshoots of your your Baptist and Presbyterian and all this. I know that there are like sects Mm -hmm. that I'm oblivious to because I'm from the complete other end of the coin. I was raised by atheists slash agnostics in that they grew up knowing that this was a thing but rebelled not because of any sort of spiritual belief or disbelief but because their generation was very much caught up in the the Catholic and Protestant thing is like none of it makes any sense to me so he just he's just like all re- all religion is bad so i was just raised all religion is bad so any hang ups that i had about my sexuality were purely and utterly about patriarchy about things that we as women were 
already told to suppress. Obviously, a lot of that is religious-based, but I didn't see it through that lens. So I'm really, really, really like this is a gift to talk to you because there has to be a situation in which people look realistically at their childhoods and weigh up how much of what I know now is unlearning what I knew then and how much of what I learned then was what my parents taught me or what society taught me. I think we've got to unravel some of these things in order to help us embrace our sex positivity in a way that is just gotten rid of all the stuff that was in the way in the first place. I just wanted to preface that with that just for us to now embrace what was like what was your first inkling as a child this was part of your life so what cult and and how did it manifest in your in your day-to-day life as a kid um yeah so the cult that I grew up in is called by people outside of it is typically called the two by twos Mm -hmm. within it um they don't claim a name because they say Jesus didn't claim a name for his church when he was on earth and so they just call it the truth or the way, which is okay. a good sign that you're in a cult. <laughs> any any QAnon yeah. people out there, you're in a cult, okay? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, admittedly, a lot of people have, they get uncomfortable if I say I was raised in a cult. And they're usually their first inclination is like, oh, I'm sure it wasn't a cult. Um, and it just depends on what your definition of a cult is and how much research you've done into what a cult is. Mm. But I've just sort of recently come to understand that it was a cult, actually just in the last probably two years. Mm. And so that was a big hurdle for me to get over. I looked it up to see if I was totally right or off like in some la la land and it met 32 out of 36 cult criteria so to me that means it's a cult (laughs) Mm -hmm. did you google am I in a cult or how did you get hold of that particular questionnaire because that would be useful for people working out because there's not just religious cults out there there's just pyramid schemes and all of these things all fall under the same definition absolutely yep am I in a cult or cult characteristics Mm. you'll find lots of little checklists to go through Mm. yeah it's fun yeah um you wanted to know how how it manifested in my life. like Yeah, what life well, as a life? child, for instance, like Jehovah's Witness children are taken on door knocks. They're, they're there to yeah. watch the, the adults go to people's lives and preach and they're, they're taken around when they should be playing baseball or, or whatever with their life rather than being this, this yeah. obnoxious things. It's interesting that you mentioned before it's hard to know what – entirely was the cult and what was um, my parents Mm. in the cult because Mm. within the cult my parents were definitely on the stricter end of things and so my experience does not directly is not a direct reflection of everybody that was in the cult Mm. (laughs) but growing up um, we had to wear skirts all the time. I wasn't even allowed to have pajama pants and, you know, our skirts had to like be below our knees when we sat down and we couldn't show our shoulders. And there was like, there's just a lot of focus on clothes and what that meant to other people and what modesty meant and how, if you wear the wrong thing, then somebody could get turned on by you kind of no matter what age you are. And we spent a lot of time driving to church. We lived kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so we went to church ourselves two days a week. And then we usually spent a lot of Sundays driving to another church that would have been like an hour and a half or maybe three hours away. And so a lot of our life was consumed with going to church. Mm. So where did you Uh, grow up? In Williams Lake, BC, Canada. Uh, Okay, yeah. Mm. Middle of nowhere. (laughs) Um, and my lullabies were the hymns. My parents didn't really believe in other music. We weren't allowed to listen to music. We didn't have a TV. We weren't allowed to dance. We weren't really allowed to do sports, um, too much because it might impact how often we could go to church. And it was just very obvious that the church and their belief in God 
and what that meant came first and then family came second, Mm. like everything else kind of came after that. So we read the Bible a lot together as a family and talked about what it meant. We didn't go door to door knocking. Mm -hmm. That wasn't a part of our cult. With the Bible discussion, was it... um, did you ask questions as a as a kid and were you satisfied with the answers all the time or did you sort of no. scratch your head a bit and go yeah but why <laughs> that's that's good explanation but how you know mm. yeah so i was raised with it from zero yeah so there was a lot that i just believed and i had a similar mindset but there were definitely things that did not make sense to me at all like for example, wearing skirts. Mm. So I remember this was a big deal to me because I got teased a lot at school for always wearing skirts. And it was a pain, like trying to ride a bike with a skirt on, like it would get caught in the chain and it could be dangerous and like Absolutely. It was ridiculous. Absolutely. And the verse that they told me was in Deuteronomy, which is in the Old Testament. And I was like, well, Like, we don't follow the Old Testament. We follow the New Testament. And my parents would be like, well, God doesn't change his mind. God's always the same. And it's like, okay, what about the whole rest of the Old Testament? Like, clearly God changed his mind. So why does this one verse stand out as like the one Mm. thing? I don't know. It was kind of ridiculous. Mm. Good for you. There's always hope if you're if you're if you're that curious kid that's annoying with but why? That's such a cool thing. Like do as I say, not what I do. I used to hate that expression so much. Totally. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, but then in cults they always have sayings that they bring up when they don't have an answer. Like, well, God's ways are higher than our ways. Or God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So it doesn't make sense, but we just need to trust that God knows what he's doing. God is the one that's in control. We just need to trust him. Or sayings like that, that you can't really refute. Like you can't say, oh, that's not true. Because it says that in the Bible. So clearly it must be true, right? Mm. Oh, you just need to pray harder. And then you would get the same conviction that I do God would tell you the same thing I that he tells me, which is that we need to wear skirts. Mm. So then it's like my fault because I'm not praying hard enough or I'm not close enough to God because then I would get the same answers you do. Mm. There's a lot of double binds mm. that are given to you. So even in those situations where I questioned things as a kid, I was given one of those and then it was like a standstill with the yeah. questioning, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what... People really did learn to do all those um, manipulative argument tactics like straw manning and, and they're taught that tactic. Actually, I didn't ask you, were your parents raised in a cult or did they come into it during They were raised their... in it. Wow. So how long, how old is it, do you know? Um, in the early 1900s. Wow. Yeah, that's when it started. Was there a feeling as a as a young person because I guess the 2 by 2 suggests uh, an exclusivity to the to the religion that you were to um be suspicious and reject other religions, particularly other Christian religions or, or whatever was that something that was like this sort of Damocles around being part of that religion? Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the things that is really big about cults is that they teach that you're the only way. And we were definitely taught that continually. This is the only way to heaven. All the other Christians are like, I don't even know if my parents, I really want to ask them this. I I don't know if they would consider themselves Christians Mm. because they wouldn't want to lump themselves in a group with all the other Christians Mm. because the other Christians are misinterpreting the Bible. Mm, Of course. (laughs) And yeah, so they are the only ones that have the correct interpretation of the Bible. And that's God's only way is through the ministers in that sect or cult. And that's it. Mm. And it's definitely, everybody else is lost. And if you leave, you're going to be extremely unhappy and live a horrible life without meaning 
lost in the howling wilderness, mm. basically, of, you know, I don't know, lust and fun and makeup. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I guess. Is there cultural and diversity within the cult? Like, is it mainly a certain sort of demographic that are members of the cult or all, over, all across the board? Yeah, it's all around the world. Mm. This one. So there's people from basically every country in the world. Wow. Are part of it. Yeah. Wow. Um, they're definitely not accepting of, you know, LGBTQ yeah. communities. Yeah. Or like that idea. It's definitely mm. like you have to be heterosexual. Mm. What about interracial pairing? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Cool. Good to hear. Again, like I don't know if that's a cult thing or just my parents. Mm. But I never, I don't know, my parents raised me in a very accepting way of everybody. I think in large part because, so the ministers in the cult, they go out two by two, which is why they're called the two by twos. Mm. So like when Jesus sent his disciples, he sent them in pairs, Mm. like two together to go preach, not one, Mm. which is the case in a lot of churches is there's one minister, but with ours, there was always two. And they went out on a volunteer basis for like their entire lives, basically. Mm. And so they had no, um, like they had no income. So everything was just given to them by the people of the church. And they would, because they don't have a home, they would stay in our houses. Mm. So they would come stay at our house for like a week or a few days or a night here and there. And other ministers from other countries would come visit. And then we would get to have them in our house. And it was very exciting. And we would learn about different countries. And it was people from every different country in the world. So Mm -hmm. I got a really big worldview growing up Mm -hmm. and learned a lot about other countries and other people. And I never got any feeling of racism or anything from my parents Mm. or the cult in general. Mm. It was like, (laughs) it was like sort of bigoted towards anybody that didn't believe the same as you did. But if they believed the same as you did, then it didn't matter where they were from or what the language they spoke or what color their skin was. So with the um, modesty clause and growing up with having to uh, be like, being forced to be aware of your physical body, at what age do you do you remember? At what age do you remember having that explained to you that your bare skin could have an effect on someone else and basically that's your fault then? Um, do you remember around about what age that kind of, that message was delivered and whether or not you absorbed what that meant? Always. Yeah. I don't remember ever not knowing that. Because mm. it seemed to be when I was a kid, my parents, because my parents are, it's, uh, I'm from a family of six. My brother was 20 years older than me. So my parents are basically grandparent age to me. And my mum would say things like, once we started puberty, that's when we should not walk around in underwear or that's when we should, cover up in case our father saw us. So there was this weird um, under the rug kind of sweeping of the fact that former generations grew up with a lot of um, incest and, and uh, child abuse and pedophilia and it was excused by them not having any control over their impulses or whatever and so this this mantle of uh, responsibility was given to children, cover yourself up because something will happen to you. So that's the message I got. Didn't decode it till a fair few years later because it feels like um, that message has been delivered to young people for a very long time to justify the sins of other people. It's interesting I'm using that word. Why? (laughs) But... um, and apportion blame to the innocent to enable these people, these authority figures, priests and and whatnot, to prey upon young people. So now that you've told me that you had people visiting, 
is there uh, a history of um, people being accused of or having uh, to fight reports or allegations of uh, wrongdoing within your church in regards to your ministers? It seems like a, an obvious question, but, you know, needs to be asked. Well, yeah, there's mm. definitely been history of child abuse or child molestation from the ministers. Mm. And it was just covered up usually. They were just sent somewhere else and they need to pray harder and we need to pray for them and poor people, you know. I just heard, I don't know if this is true, but I'm pretty sure it is, that there are three ministers right now that are being charged with um, child sexual molestation in the court system, Mm. which makes me really happy. I Mm. hope that that's a change that's happening within that group Mm. and that that continues to be a norm. Mm. That if that happens, they take it to the police and they're not counseled not to. Mm. Do you remember when you first heard of this happening within the church? Yeah, just a few years ago. Yeah. actually, Mm. I was really, we had a lot of ministers in our home and I didn't have to deal with that. I'm not sure how I escaped that, Mm. (laughs) but Mm. I did. So I'm really glad of that. Mm. So... How was puberty for you with all of this going on around you? Were you taught about menstruation properly and and stuff? Yes, Mm. I was actually. They told me what to expect and they helped me out the first time I had it and taught me like how to put a pad on and how to put a tampon in and all this kind of stuff. And my mom and my sister took me out for ice cream to celebrate. And okay. It was really So fun. you're celebrating being a woman and all this sort yeah. of stuff. It's kind of like yeah. that when I was a kid too. Yeah. My mom was, now you can have babies, but don't have sex. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. The, the dual message. You lucky thing. Now, be careful. <laughs> yeah, totally. Mm. Um, puberty was hard in being comfortable in my body, which I think is true for basically everybody that goes through puberty. Mm. But there was definitely a, always that underlying huge focus on what you wear. Like, I don't, it, like, it was all consuming what I was wearing. Was it too tight? Was it too low? Was it too high? Was it, you know, could I possibly attract somebody in this outfit? And if I could, I shouldn't wear it. And I don't know. It, mm. was, it was a lot. Mm. And then I wanted to be sexy, right? Because I mm. was a teenager and I had hormones and I was a sexual teenager. And so I wanted to be sexy. So I tried to push the limits. And then it was like, well, it might be tight, but it's like really high up and it's like long sleeve. So why isn't that okay? Or, <laughs> you know, yeah. how did you reconcile? your emerging sexuality with being, you know, being raised in a a religion cult that made you feel guilty for for just being who you were at that time in your life. Yeah, well, I was sexual. Like I started masturbating when I was probably eight. Yeah, awesome. And then I would just masturbate and feel extremely guilty, like just crushing guilt, like every single time. And it was like every New Year's, it was like, I'm never going to masturbate again. I promise I'm going to pray so hard and I'm never going to masturbate again. Mm. Like anytime we would move, it would be like, in this house, I'm not going (laughs) to Or like anytime anything happened, it was like, okay, fresh start. And so it was just continual masturbation, extreme guilt. And then... Which, fuel, which fuels being, the masturbation. <laughs> the guilt. It's like any kind of habit that you've, you've formed. The, yeah. the, the thing is still, it's my thing, right? It's my thing. And that, that makes it exciting. I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. And yep, increases the pleasure. Too, for mm. sure. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then I I had sex for the first time when I was 16 Mm -hmm. and sex kind of became my way of rebelling. I don't know, looking back, it was actually a really beautiful thing. Like I feel like my sexuality really in the end 
showed me the way out of the cult in a way. But that was one of the things is I really rebelled with sex because it was something that nobody could see, Mm. right? I could still be the perfect little church girl and my parents didn't have to know and nobody had to know that I was having sex. Mm. But again, it was like every time I had sex, it was like massive guilt. I'm like, oh, we shouldn't be doing this. This is wrong. This is bad. And I felt the guilt, but I also really loved it Mm. and it felt really good to me. And so it was my biggest way of rebelling, which Mm. I'm really happy about looking back. It's the thing. I wasn't raised in a religious household, but that's the same thing. I was rebelling from um, other things to do with the way my parents raised me and the the, um, dysfunctional relationship that they had. I was the youngest, so they seemed to be, oh, we we were pretty strict with the older ones and, you know, kids will do whatever they want anyway and they sort of were less um, hovery. They, weren't, they, they didn't really know what was going on in my life that much. And I guess because of their lack of interest, I was more inclined to go and uh, seek experiences and to learn about my sexuality and explore my sexuality because it was replacing any sense of anyone really caring about me. I don't think as a young person, I don't think I had the the wherewithal to realise that my sexual discovery was actually an act of female emancipation at the time and, and sex positivity at the time. I, retrospectively, I can, I can analyse it that way, but at the time I was like, I want people to like me And sex seems to be what my mother keeps telling me, keeps my dad interested in her. (laughs) So, so these are the, these are the conclusions I came to is that, um, sexuality was how I, how I got people to love me. We have sex for a large list of reasons. We do. Mm. Mm. It's a great way to get our wounds fulfilled for a short amount of time and yeah Mm. yeah like I remember I think the biggest reason that I the biggest wound that I fulfilled with sex is to be desirable like Mm -hmm. I really wanted to be wanted and to be desired yeah and I counted on my partner to make me feel that way Mm. like I didn't feel that way on my own for whatever reason. And so it was like, if you don't want to have sex with me all the time, then something's wrong with me. And it was just this compounding issue that I had Mm. with sex. And a lot of other issues were like brought into it and it just became very messy. Mm. (laughs) But under it all was just loving sex and sexuality and the feeling of, aliveness that it brings and the creativity and the joy that it can bring into your life so and the connection is something unnameable there's some sort of something going on at the point of orgasm where you completely and utterly are in another space and your brain your brain is not taking much of anything else in except for the pleasure state that you're in for the duration of it so it's a it's a transcendental kind of experience and yeah, that's the perfect word for it yeah yeah so I dabbled in some drugs when I was younger but they tended to have uh, an exaggerated effect on me I seem to have these receptors in my brain for for um, smoking pot I always just it was just too much for me all this sort of stuff so I dabbled here and there but the the hit of adrenaline or the hit of feeling or euphoria or whatever of sex when it's when it's at its height and your body is at its most alive it's a great experience but having said that there are many many experiences in our lives as human beings that are euphoric in a similar sort of way mm-hmm. but we're always taught to temper everything about ecstatic moments and ideas and fun and you know because I'm a very noisy person in bed and particularly around orgasm and stuff I'm very very noisy and I always thought well gee when you laugh and you something's really funny you laugh pretty loud and the laughter in and of itself is one of the most pleasurable feelings 
you can have. And people on roller coasters, you know, they're really, really scared but exhilarated and scream <laughs> at the same time. So yeah. I, I kind of joined the dots in my own mind but it wasn't until like years later when I did my podcast that I actually learned about this whole brain network of the vagus nerve and everything that does actually connect all these similar exhilarated and frightened feelings into that one thing. But mental illness and the stigma of mental illness has had women especially moderating their behaviour yeah, um, and the sounds that they make in public, <laughs> whatever those sounds yeah. may be, whether it's shrieking or laughing or, or whatever, um, we just got to be... We've got to be quiet and demure or people will think that we're crazy. Yeah. Mm. I think about that a lot with grief. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because usually, well, in a lot of cultures at funerals, there's wailing. Mm. We don't have wailing at our funerals. We don't have enough wailing. Mm. We don't we barely have loud crying. Like you're not supposed to make noise. You might make other people uncomfortable because you know, you have feelings or Mm. (laughs) whatever. We're not taught people to facilitate this unearthing of, of, you know, this pain that cannot be described. It can only be felt. Um, the transcendental kind of blissful feelings that you were talking about that were taught to temper or just not pay attention to. Mm. I actually kind of took that a different way than what you were saying, Mm. because since I've learned more about pleasure and connected more to my own body, I've found an immense amount of pleasure in things like nature. Mm. Like this weekend we went on a hike and I'm I'm a waterfall girl. Waterfall after waterfall after waterfall. And it's gorgeous. It's amazing. And I felt that way. Like I just felt so blissful and so happy. I wanted to cry. I felt so happy just from being in nature and the pleasure of being in nature and the sounds mm. and the feeling and the everything was just amazing. Mm. And you can even get that from food. Like there's a reason people call it a foodgasm. Mm. You eat like the first bite of the most amazing food and you're like, oh, yes, this is amazing. You really embody that, right? Yeah. It's mindfulness and it's gratitude and it's all of those things. Interesting you should bring up waterfalls um, because when my, um, my second marriage ended, the following January, I found myself visiting a local music venue that also doubled as a um, like a backpacker's place for people to, to stay and work at this music venue, selling tickets, working behind the bar and all that sort of stuff. So it was this beautiful, welcoming, hippie atmosphere and it recaptured a lot of things that I'd lost from my youth. That was the journey I was on. And then I met someone, got married, and he wasn't into that sort of stuff at all. So, so I was taken away from my more authentic self. But here were these people who were always going on hikes and, and all this sort of stuff. And I thought, these are the people I can ask this question to. And I sent a message to a group chat and just said, I need to get myself to a waterfall naked so that I can scream. I have to express grief. I have to let this out. And I feel like I need to be in nature and under a waterfall naked to do that. And one of them went, I'll come with you. And yeah, we went and spent the day. And at the at the appropriate moment, we just both took our clothes off and just went and stood under the thing. And I and I just let out a big moan under the waterfall. And after it was over, Um, the person I was with just was like, that was magnetic. I don't know how it felt from her end, but that was how she described it. And I just, I just thought I wanted the water to wash my tears away. I wanted baptism. Interesting. We should get back to religion. I've never had a religious bone in my body, but, but the concept of immersing in water, whether it's a metaphor or, or whatever, it makes sense to me. Anytime you go swimming in the ocean and, and you connect with this water that's kind of always been there, <laughs> it's like this is, I'm renewing, something is renewing in me. So that seemed like a great idea. Yeah. The other waterfall thing 
was I was seeing this guy he was Indian and I was like I'll take you to this waterfall same waterfall and um, he wanted to salute the sun and he was speaking in Sanskrit and the water was coming down and I was standing behind him and I was listening to him do his salutations and, and, and stuff and listening to his voice and listening to the water and I closed my eyes. This is instinct. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like, I'm just going to get in touch with my inner hippie right now and just let this thing happen. So I rested my forehead between his shoulder blades and I let out a, a, a sound, like a, a, an ohm-like sound, just went, uh and just kept doing it. And I felt, God, this is really hippy-dippy stuff now, I felt myself filled with light as I was doing it. And it felt like yeah. the, the water, at, you know, the, the droplets of water, the sunshine, everything seemed to be contributing to this feeling of an inner glow. And I'm thinking, but I'm not of that world. I have, I don't, this is not something I've been taught or learned or whatever, I'm just doing this as a, spiritual slash science experiment within my own mind and and the fact that I love sound, really love sound and what it does, the vibrations do do, do, do to your body. So we're doing this thing and he's, he's doing his Sanskrit and then after about a minute he turned around to me and he's like, did you feel that? Whatever it was that I felt happen, he felt happen at the same time. I wish I could be doing things like that more often but it just seemed to be certain pockets of time in my life where these things happened that made me believe in the science of spirituality more so than the stories that are passed down from generation, but the science of how we are connected as human beings and how we're connected to our environment. One of the tools that I learned that has helped me a lot mm. is vocalizing mm. and also letting my body move. Mm. So really focusing on you know, this a grief that you feel or your anxiety or your anger or your joy and just like letting yourself make whatever sound you need to or feel like making and moving in whatever weird and wild ways you need to move. And that's one of, that's a huge trauma tool, like a tool to get yourself out of trauma, stuck patterns. Yeah is vocalizing and moving your body and you feel totally crazy when you're doing it. Yeah. And you make really weird sounds and you make really weird movements, but it's an incredible feeling mm. after. And you can often even feel your yourself like alchemizing these feelings into peace and joy and life and like more energy mm. than you had before. It's a really powerful thing. And I, I definitely am with you. I wish that it was more accepted in our culture. Yeah. Well, what you've just described to me is how I would encourage people who had any difficulty reaching orgasm to, yeah. u to use those exact tools um, yeah, exactly. Uh, particularly if difficulty that they incur is they feel an orgasm is coming close to them on the horizon and they get into their head and kind of scare it off. I'd be like, in that moment, engage your body, move your body, jerk your pelvis, use sounds. The orgasm's yeah. there. <laughs> it's floating around in the atmosphere. It's, it's in your body. It's just waiting to be let out. And sometimes you, you have to let go of control and let it happen. It's a thing that happens to your body rather than a thing that someone else is making happen to your body or that you're making happen to your body. It's a thing that's going to happen one way or another. Yeah. If you just go nuts, just literally go nuts. I learned that <laughs> from, I suppose, good sex that made me go crazy anyway, but also through childbirth as well because mm. you can't you can't help but make weird sounds and and you know and you feel like the louder you, you are when you you're in pain going ow like everybody says ow when they stub their toe everyone makes a noise and kids cry it does it 
releases endorphins and, and whatever that is a natural pain alleviator. Sometimes I just lose words. Yeah. It's, gr- it's great getting old. Uh, <laughs> but um, I don't think that has to do with getting old because I lose words too. But yeah, but it's, maybe it, it happens more when you get older. <laughs> I just run out of adjectives sometimes because I like them so much. Yeah, it's, it's oh, we're, we're told to suppress everything about ourselves as children and everything yeah. that we're told is totally counterintuitive to to being human. Now, that arrived to me because, like yourself, I really, really like sex. And with you, it arrived to you counterintuitive to very, very strict teachings that you were told, Mm -hmm. particularly, it's more than being called a name, like a slut when I was a young person, like whatever, slut, who cares? Uh, (laughs) But you're, you're being threatened with what, hell? Were you being through? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And how, how was that? How did, how did you process that as a kid? Like you mean with being a sexual being? Or just doing anything wrong or, or, or being loud, as you were saying. Just, oh, yeah. Just, yeah, just, you know, children are seen and not heard in most cases. Um, I wouldn't say that I felt threatened with hell for not being quiet unless it was during church (laughs) but um even then it wasn't I didn't feel like it was uh hell that awaited me for that but just being myself basically I was taught that anything any part of who I was was dirt like worthless Mm. and the only thing that was worth anything was like the more that I became like Jesus somebody else other than me Mm. that was worth something Mm. but anything in my nature was to be denied and chucked aside and repressed and suppressed and seen as like filth basically like it's your human right like who Mm. wants to be human you want to be like god yeah Um, like I was definitely taught that my sexuality was dangerous Mm. That was, that's been one of the stickiest points for me. Yeah. And yeah, not only are you threatened with hell, but other people's salvation as well. Because if you leave and then somebody else leaves because you left, or if you do something that makes somebody else sin, then you could cost them their salvation. So it's not only your salvation and you going to hell, but it's somebody else. Because mm. you can you always have an influence on other people. Right. So it was just a constant living in fear mm. of that. And yeah, fear of hell was one of the stickiest beliefs for me as well. Mm. How did you imagine it would be? What did they tell you about what hell is? That's a really good question. Mm. I just knew that I didn't want to go there. So I was going to ask you about heaven too, if you, if you had a, an idea yeah. of what that was going to be like as well. Yeah. Mm. Like I pictured hell as weeping and wailing of gnashing of teeth. That's what it says in the Bible. So basically regret and everlasting sadness and anger and regret. I feel like regret is the biggest thing like just living in constant regret for what you didn't do on earth and being far away from God and anything that's good Mm. like just horrible and then heaven it says that you spend heaven singing God's praises so that's That's what I imagined. And then wow, that when I really like started a party. About it as an adult, <laughs> I was like, well, that kind of sounds like hell too. <laughs> so I don't know. Like I've been like, doing that. What people think I've of it. I've been doing that. <laughs> it's going to yeah. be the same as this. Yeah. What people think of it. Like, ex- like explain to me heaven. That sounds interesting. That sounds like somewhere I want to go. Because mm. people often think of heaven as being... You know, there's no sadness, there's no grief, there's no problems, there's no troubles, there's no anything, you know? It's just like an eternity of holiday Mm -hmm. with perfect weather every day and 
it just sounds horrible. Mm. Like it might be nice for a week, Mm. but what gives us meaning and purpose and excitement and forward movement in our life as human beings is like overcoming things and growing and learning new things. And there's like none of that in heaven. Mm. I it's never just sailing woo, forever. I, I never put much thought into it. There was a song by the Sparks that uh, is called Up Here in Heaven Without You. And it just sounded boring. Like, you know, pe- people just keep talking about how they died. You know, that's, that's how the song goes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like it's just a place where we are and nothing much happens. And um, I think while he- the idea of hell sounds, um, fiery and, and you know fire and brimstone whatever the hell that means all that sort of stuff as you get older and more rebellious you you, you catch up with people that um are like yeah I'm going I'm going to hell who's with me yes and you imagine it's it looks more like um little Nas X's uh video clip on Montero you think that looks like a party <laughs> let's do that you know that was fine no one had a problem with it um, we rudely interrupt this conversation about cool hell to let you know that part two will be dropping this Friday I'm not going to make you wait two whole weeks it's barely even going to be a week it's only a few days uh, for part two we do actually do a, an immediate right angle after that bit of the conversation, so it was actually a good place to break it, although you might not think so <laughs> based on what we were riffing on at the very end there. Um, hell is cool. Heaven is boring. I think we all agree that um, that's the impression most of us were given, weren't we? Um, Speaking of cool celebratory things like hell, um, it's the first birthday of the podcast this week. Even though I did drop episode one a few weeks before the official launch, um, I actually took my time for a reason. Um, I was nervous. (laughs) I was so nervous. And... Um, I'm going to take some time soon to actually go back and listen to those first few episodes to see how nervous I was. I'm not nervous at all now. I just ramble on and I'm not as afraid as I was to just sit down and have a chat with you all without meticulously writing every word down that I was going to say. So yeah, this is um, an interesting part of the podcast history because we're kind of coming full circle. We started out talking about sexuality and orgasm at the very beginning and um, I know I did mention previously that I was going to speak to the author of Becoming Cliterate. We had to postpone that and then Phoebe arrived in the meantime so I thought let's just do Phoebe first. Um, I'm talking to Laurie at the end of this week and I will put that out in a few weeks time so we will be talking more specifically about um, sexuality and orgasm and uh, repression and empowerment and all that sort of stuff it's going to be picking up where we left off with 2020 and orgasmic oddity I did say I would get around to it but um, it's been a great journey this past 12 months exploring um, sexuality, unearthing old articles that still hold up after 20-odd years and um, also talking about uh, transgender, bisexuality, um, consent, with the wheel of consent, consent for kids. We've covered a lot of ground and now we are coming back to sex ahead of talking about love, romance, mental health, that's the areas that I'm really interested in. So it's an eclectic collection of podcasts till now, but I insist on tying them all together with a gossamer thread (laughs) to give me some sort of sense of the ground we haven't covered yet or the ground we haven't covered thoroughly enough yet. But the eloquent in the room is just about talking about things that we don't talk about but should. Um, And on Instagram, I'm 
being more visual with that metaphor. So if you're not already following me on Instagram, please do. Um, And if you are from Instagram and you're new to the podcast, please go back and listen to previous uh, episodes. And to everybody, please share, please like, please rate, please do the things that will help me grow this community. We've built up some momentum now, so I really want to capitalize on that. I'm not getting paid for this. I would like to make this my job. I work at it like it is my job. But it would be so nice to um, get a Patreon up and running and um, create a more intimate community with the people who like to listen and with the people who like to follow me on Instagram and create connections um, between me and you and between you and each other and um, keep pointing at the proverbial elephant in the room and keep talking about the things we want to talk about. I want feedback from you so that we can talk about the things that you want to talk about, but you're uncomfortable bringing it up. Don't be. Send me a message and um, I'll feel uncomfortable for all of us and uh, do this podcast. And all the other stuff, including the EP I'm working on for release in November to coincide with my 60th birthday. I know what the EP is going to be called. I'm not going to reveal that just yet. Um, But yeah, all the projects are all under the Eloquent in the Room umbrella. Where to from here? Who knows? Let's find out together. Give yourselves a great big hug for me and I'll speak to you soon sooner than you think actually me and Phoebes will be returning to talk more about growing up in a a cult